0: beautiful beautiful, for spacious skies forever
1: Amen. Let's take our Bibles, turn over to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 4, and we have to, we have to end this series because, well, they, they put it in the bulletin that the next one starts next week. So there you go. We're on a time frame now. We've got to get to it. All right. They're messing around with our sound system tonight, so if something sounds funky or crazy, uh, that's all right, okay? That'll be okay. We uh, have to do some uh, revamping. We're trying to get some things worked out. As you heard last week, some of that popping and clicking and all that stuff scaring us a little bit, concerns us. And so we've been eh, working on a few things. And uh, so today they're kind of trying to fine tune it a little bit. So don't worry about it. It'll be better probably by Sunday if it is a problem for you. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8. Galatians chapter 4, we're going to begin in verse 8. And we're going to read on through there, and then we're going to pick up kind of where we left off. It says, How be it then, when ye knew not God, ye did service unto them which by nature are no gods. But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God. How turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. I'm afraid of you, lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am. For I am as ye are, ye have not injured me at all. You know how through infirmity of the flesh I preached the gospel unto you at the first? And my temptation which was in my flesh ye despised not, nor rejected. But received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. Where is then the blessedness ye spake of? For I bear you record that if, I had been, if it had been possible, ye would have plucked out your own eyes and have given them to me. Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? And again, we've spent quite a bit of time addressing this issue, talking about it, and we just know that the Apostle Paul loved these people in Galatia. He had invested his time, his effort, his his energy in trying to ground them in the faith. Of course, he was the one that God used to lead many of them to Christ, or at least proclaim the gospel that did indeed bring them to Jesus, but... Here we find a very unusual situation. It's, I, I would hope it would be more unusual. It should be unusual, at least. At some point, maybe it's not. I hope it is. But he says at this point in verse 16, he says, Now listen, I have shared with you certain truths, and I have given you some doctrine that is is, is very imperative and very important for you. And yet there's been some of these Judaizers and others that have come along and sowed seeds of discord amongst you and have even sown, uh, you know, seeds of of falsehoods and, and things that aren't true. And they've kind of directed your attention away from the gospel and the truth of the word of God, unfortunately, to works and some of the things that just are going to make life difficult for you. And so basically, here they are now. There are people that have been saved, but unfortunately for them, they're back in bondage again. This time, not the bondage of paganism, uh, not the bondage of idolatry, not the bondage of sin in the sense that they're lost without Christ, but they're in bondage again to the law. They've submitted themselves to the law. They've, they've been burdened down by the law. They've come to the conclusion somehow because they've been taught now from another source that you're going to have to keep the law as well you're going to, have to follow through with the law as well if you want to truly be saved and paul the apostle is trying to be very kind to them but in the long run he's saying well, listen that's wrong that is false doctrine you've got to get it straight you need to be as i am because i'm like you we're all saved by grace here and we have to live by grace and so nonetheless he eventually comes to the point where these people have who once loved him, who once admired him, who once would have literally plucked their eyes out on his behalf, he has to say to them, am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? And so we've looked at so many different avenues, so many different aspects of this passage and and we, we talked about, you know, well, what should someone do that sees the pastor as the enemy? And, and then we, kinda, we started talking now here about what, what can a pastor do if he's become the enemy in someone's eyes? And we've explained and expressed a number of aspects. First of all, expect it, but don't accept it as common. Uh, and we said that. And, and then we said, well, what should a pastor do? Well, he should evaluate the situation. He should evaluate himself and his response. We said, what else? Express and extend love. No matter what, keep expressing and extending love. And then we went on to say, what else should a pastor do? Well, he should communicate and confront. And of course, at that point, we addressed the rules of engagement. And we looked at the Word of God and saw how you and I both, in the midst of maybe even false accusation or or being wrongly accused, would respond or should respond, how we should deal with that. And so we noted those rules of engagement. And then we said last week that a pastor needs to guard his heart. He's got to guard his heart. And you know, we it's so easy to fall prey to fleshly impulses. It just is. And and so we see that the pastor has to refuse to grow bitter. He has to refuse to do that. And then we, we also recognize that to exhibit a knee jerk reaction is not the way that he's supposed to respond. So what do we what do we say? He has to refuse to fight. He can't just go in there with guns blazing. It's not going to get the job done. And then also, we, we couldn't help but realize that we have to choose to forgive during this emotional and even at times heated situation. And so we said it as a pastor, he has to choose to forgive. So he, he can't, he's got to refuse to grow bitter. He's got to refuse to fight, and he has to choose to forgive. And that's where we left off. And so today we want to talk about something else that the pastor needs to do when it appears that someone, or that he has become the enemy in someone's eyes. Well, he needs to pray. He needs to pray. Let's talk about that and maybe one other thing before we close this service out, as well as this series. Let's pray. Father, we come to you. We thank you now for all that you mean to us and all that you've done for us. Father, we owe you everything. And tonight we gather here with the Uh, expectation of hearing from you and hearing from heaven and from your blessed book the word of god now father encourage us and help us lord as we look forward to tomorrow and uh, the fourth of july and as we consider father the the birth of our nation the fact is lord we are so grateful that you the lord jesus uh, that you sent your son jesus to to come to earth to be born Uh, to be born uh, God-man and to live a perfect, sinless life and to ultimately die on the cross to pay for our sin and raise again the third day. Lord, we can't thank you enough for that. Lord, we're grateful for that soul that was saved today, even in a funeral. Lord, everywhere we turn, there's people that need you. Now help us, Lord, just to be very open and, Father, just glean from you tonight in your word. We'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen. Turn, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23. There's a tremendous statement that's made here in this particular passage as we talk about a pastor's responsibility is to pray. I mean, in the event that someone feels as though the pastor's become their enemy, even if it's because the pastor has spoken the truth and shared the truth and has only shared what God would have him share, and if it's perceived that way, then what does he need to do? He's got to pray. He's got to pray. Look in Samuel, 1 Samuel 12, 23. Notice what the, the Bible says. And again, we're, we're, we're going to be referring to speaking about one of these great prophets by the name of Samuel. It says in 1 Samuel 12, 23, Moreover, as for me, Samuel said, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. But I will teach you the good and the right way. Now, again, notice the, uh, Samuel saying something here. It's very important what he's saying. He says, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord. Now, I think it's important to realize, first of all, when we sin, we sin primarily against God. That's the first and most important portion of sin. It always, it always goes against God. It's a sin against God. Certainly, it affects others around us. But as David said, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. David understood that reality, and we need to understand that. When we sin, the greatest harm done is not to the one we've sinned against, but to the God who bore us, created us. And Samuel, in this case, says, listen, he says, Moreover, it's for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Now, Israel desired a king, and the setting of this passage is very important to, to, so that we can grasp what's being said here. But Israel had desired a king. They wanted to be like the rest of the nations. Now, again, all the nations had kings, and yet in this case, uh, God was kind of bent on a theocracy, so to speak, and yet the, the children of Israel wanted a, 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 you know, basically they wanted a king just like all the other nations. and. So that made Samuel feel a little rejected. It made him feel a little bit sad and down in the mouth. And he was kind of like, hey, after everything we've done and everything I've tried to do for you, and as far as we've come and as far as God's taken us, now you still want to be like the other nations, and you don't want me to be your prophet. You don't want me to stand before you as priest. You don't want me to take that position of leadership. You want a king? Boy, I tell you what, Samuel was a little bit upset about it. He felt that they were rejecting him. You've never felt rejected, have you? Of course you haven't. Exactly, yeah, right. We've all felt that at some point, and Samuel was feeling that. He's feeling that. And um, so he was hurt here. Samuel was hurt by the decision of the people. But yet Samuel was assured that they hadn't rejected him, but they had rejected God. God made it clear to Samuel that it was not him that was being rejected. It was God being rejected. And when it was all said and done, Samuel understands what his responsibility toward his people was, no matter how they responded to him. Now, again, it's important. Notice how he says, he says real simply here, he says, moreover, ask for me. When we see that word ask for me, I can't help but go back to Uh, back there in Joshua, you know, as for me and my house. And in this case, he says, now, now, Israel, listen, I know you've rejected me in a sense. At least that's how I feel. I I felt that way and I'm concerned about that. And God's made it clear to me, obviously, at some point here that it's going to be really you rejecting him. But I'll tell you what. Moreover, as for me, God forbid that I should sin against the Lord In ceasing to pray for you, even though I feel that you've slighted me, even though I feel that you have rejected me, even though I feel like you've not treated me properly, I cannot sin against the Lord by not praying for you. And so what Samuel does here basically is this. He says, you know what? No matter how I'm treated, I still have a responsibility to fulfill. Now, you're going to find in the Word of God that God is all about responsibility. He's always about responsibility. You know, you and I are quick to point out our rights. You know, God is quick to point out our responsibilities. For instance, when God addresses husbands, he says, Husbands, love your wives. When he talks to the wife, he says that they are to submit to their own husbands. When he talks to the children, he says, Now, children, you are to honor and obey your parents. He's always emphasizing and pointing out the responsibility of the reader. What God doesn't do is say, you poor pitiful husbands, you poor sad fellows, your, poor, your wife is treating you with disrespect. She's not submitting like she ought to. It's going to be so tough. It's so going to be so difficult. You're going to be living and growing up in a world that is demasculatizing men, and you're going to be going, and i just tell you, I understand it. I get it. It's going to be so hard for you. I feel so bad for you. No, that's not what God does. God says, you know what? Here's your responsibility. Now do it. I don't care what the culture's like. It doesn't matter what the circumstance is about. It doesn't matter how difficult it may be. You have a responsibility. And that's what he says to the wives in submission. That's what he says to the children in obedience. That's what he says to the husbands toward the wife. You always love her unconditionally, always, no matter what. Because God's always about responsibility. He's not about our feelings, and he's not about how, how what we think is just or fair. That's not what God is concerned about. What God is concerned about his responsibility. Look, if you would, well, you, you need, not at this point, turn over there, but let's consider another example. How about Elijah? Elijah is just called fire down from heaven in chapter 18 of the book of 1 Kings, and, and, and he is responsible for the death of 450 prophets of Baal. I mean, he has has watched as God brought the fire down and convinced those in attendance that the God of heaven was superior to Baal and all idols. As a matter of fact, we read in the passage there in 1 Kings 19 that they said, the Lord, he is the God. The Lord, he is the God. Wow, what a victory, huh? An amazing victory that day. Sadly, and almost unbelievably, if it wasn't for the fact that we are so much like Elijah. We see him now running from Queen Jezebel, and for his life. I mean, she's upset. She hears from King Ahab that this man had destroyed and killed all these prophets, and she says, "Man, let me tell you, that much more happened to me if I don't kill him." <laughs> I mean, me and the gods are going after him. And is that, not that you, wrap your mind around that for a minute, would you? He's just seen God send fire from heaven, lick up all the water, burn up the sacrifice, and give him the ability to literally wax 450 Baal prophets. And now one woman threatens to kill him. And he's on the run. I don't know about you, but that's a crazy, crazy vision, visual to me. Now, listen, hold on now, because we're not through the story yet, and we're going to get to something that I think is extremely important. Again, sadly, but unbelievably, he's on the run. he's, he's, He's being chased down by a queen. He's concerned for his very life. He finds himself increasingly discouraged and even depressed, so much so that he even asks God to kill him. In 1 Kings 19, 4, the Bible says, It is enough now, O Lord. Take away my life for I am not better than my fathers. Isn't that amazing? And yet the Lord exhibits tremendous compassion and care for Elijah, at least at this very low point in his life. Now, listen, whether he should or should not have been so depressed isn't really as important as how God responded, in my opinion. Listen, I'm going to be honest with you. You know, unless you've ever been depressed... I'm not talking about you thought you were. You will know if you're depressed. I mean, really depressed. Then you have no idea what you're talking about when you say, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I'm just going to tell you right now, you don't understand it. Listen, you can pretend you do, and you can try to tell everybody you do, and you just need to suck it up. I know how it is. I've been down in the dumps a few times. You just got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You've never been truly depressed, my friend. Now, listen, I'm not one of these guys that says we ought to just start jumping on medication and all of that. Don't misunderstand where I'm going with this. But I'm going to tell you what Elijah was in a position where God said, You know what? I can't believe it. We, you, here you were on the top of the mountain, and now you're so deep in the valley, you want me to take your life. And yet God didn't go, You big wimp! Wake up, you sissy! He didn't do that. God didn't do that, did he? He's feeding Elijah. He's caring for Elijah. He's trying to build his strength back up. You think about that the next time you run into somebody that's depressed. Be careful how you treat people because you need to treat them like God would. Now I'm not saying, now watch, hold on, because this story's not done yet. Because there comes a point where God says enough's enough. Because see, remember, God's always about responsibility. He's not as concerned about how we feel about the circumstance of the situation as he is in in accomplishing what his will and purpose is for your life. And therefore, he has a responsibility for you. And in this particular case, he has a responsibility for Elijah. In 1 Kings 19, 19, 9-10. Turn there, would you? Let's go ahead and look at it. This is a conversation that takes place between Elijah and... And, and, and God and it takes place twice it, it takes place two times at different points Okay, there's been some things between these two things it's not like it happens immediately but God's going to be working on Elijah he's going to be trying to help Elijah and he's, 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 he's being patient with Elijah to a point can I just say this though just because someone is depressed do not allow them to do something that is not biblical No, you still got to hold the ground when it comes to the Bible. You still can't let people do sinful things or bad things because they're depressed. Well, I'm afraid they'll take their life. Do not permit them to do sinful things. And listen, you, you can't compromise truth. You have compassion and you love them, but you still can't deny the word of God and the God of heaven that saved your soul. Be very careful how you handle that. With great compassion, great care, Notice what happens here, 1 Kings 19, 9 through 10. And he came thither in unto a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. And he said unto him, What doest thou here, Elijah? What doest thou here? Now, can I ask you, do you think God knew what he was doing there? Of course he did. But you know what? You know what I believe? We're going to see him ask the exact same question. Sometimes I think God has to ask us a question so that we actually consider the answer. Because we don't always know where we're at and why. You know, I think this would be a good question to ask a Sunday school teacher. What doest thou here? I think it'd be a great question to ask a soul winner at the soul winning rally. What doest thou here? I think it'd be a good thing to ask a church member that's sitting in the service tonight. What doest thou here? What are you really here for? And so God's asking the question, what doest thou here? What a great question. Notice, and he said, verse 10, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. Now, I don't know about you, but, and it probably has, it's probably not true at all. But in my mind, I can almost hear him almost, almost like, (sighs) I've been so very jealous of the Lord God of hosts, For the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. Now that may not be how it went down. But I can almost hear that. You say, well, how can you almost hear that? Because I've done it probably. But Lord, you don't get it. You've ever said that to God? Now, you may not have said those words, maybe, but you might have said it in your heart. I know I have at times in my life. I'm not going to lie to you. And, and here we have him responding in a way. And, and listen, this conversation between God and Elijah would take place one more time. I mean, literally, word for word, it happens exactly like this again. I mean, what doest thou here, Elijah? And it's not in this, it's, this setting. It's, it's a little bit further down the road, just slightly down the road a ways. But God asked the question again. Now, this conversation, again, takes place. However, despite Elijah's response, God simply gives him marching orders again. There comes a point where God says, enough's enough. It's time to to exhibit some some character. It's time to exhibit some discipline. It's time for you to move on. Listen, I've cared for you, and I've, I've consoled you, and I've conversed with you, and I've tried all I can to help you. But listen, I'm about responsibility, and you have a job to do. And you're going to anoint Jehu as king. And then you're going to anoint Elisha in your place. And then interestingly enough, God then says, Oh, by the way, just thought you might want to know. In verse 18. Yet I have left me 7,000 in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which hath not kissed him. By the way, you're not the only one who's right with God. You're not the only one who pleases me. You're not the only one who fights my battles side by side with me. You're not the only one that is faithful to me. You are not the only one. And boy, may I tell you that that mentality and that thought has destroyed so many believers down through the years. It has wrecked preachers. It has wrecked people in pews. It's ruined and wrecked families because we think somehow we're the only one standing here if it wasn't for me. Boy, Elijah was really, to some degree, a legend in his own mind at this point. Have you ever gotten there? I bet you there's no husband has to put up with the junk I do. There's no wife. There's, 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 no, there's, there, there's a wife that says there's no husband that, I bet, treats him with such disrespect in the church. That if I, man, my husband's the worst. Uh, you might be surprised. You might be real surprised. I mean, I'm staying faithful in spite of all of this. This is so difficult. God, I don't know what you're doing. And he's saying, no, what doest thou here? wasn't for me teaching my Sunday school class, all these other losers out here. I can tell because I watched them on Facebook. You should hear the way they talk on Facebook. You should see what they dress like. You should see where they go. You should see what they do. I've been checking up on I'm the only one that's faithful. I, I mean, when it's all said and done, they better be lucky I'm still there. Oh, okay, good. Yeah. That martyr's complex thing. You know, if we're not careful, we get that. By the way, preachers can get that real quick too. You want to know why? Because they're just like you. Flesh. We're flesh. Boy, I mean, if Elijah can stoop to that point, if he can get to that place, if he can see himself, man, I'm the only one being faithful, and God has to go, whoa, 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 wake up. Wake up, Elijah. and there's 7,000 that haven't kissed him. and There's 7,000 that haven't bowed to Baal. See, God is quick to care for us. And still, he is quick to point out our responsibility. It's an amazing thing, isn't it, as our teenagers grow up. If they're not taught properly, the trap they fall into is believing that they deserve rights. Instead of having to earn them. To earn freedom, not just be given it. It's our job as parents to make sure they understand there is responsibility, and that is the first call to duty. Your responsibility weighs heavy and weighs first before the freedom comes. Now, I'm not talking about your freedom and salvation. I'm talking about the freedom that you have to be free, <laughs> to do as you like in so many ways. I don't know why my parents don't trust me. Maybe you've given them a good reason not to. I don't know why my wife doesn't trust me. Well, sir, maybe you've given your wife a good reason not to. I don't know why my wife doesn't, or my husband doesn't, let's see, whatever, you get it. You got it, right? Responsibility, God's big on it. And you know, God doesn't say, poor pitiful you. Now, he's there to comfort, he's there to console, he's there to converse, but may I say there comes a point where God finally says, you know what? Don't care if you got hurt or not. You got a responsibility to fulfill. doesn't matter how, I don't care how hurt you think you are. It doesn't matter in that regard. Listen, cast all your care on me because I do care for you. Maybe nobody else does, but I do. So get, get off the, 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 the train that says, you know, oh, poor pitiful me. No, you've got some responsibilities here. And even as a pastor, it is easy and quite natural to feel sorry for ourselves. And we are as prone to adapt the martyr's complex as Elijah was. And probably more so, because I don't really think many of us could hold a candle to his spirituality. But still, God, however, only consoles us so much before he reminds us of our responsibility. So no matter how grievous, no matter how Attacked and harmed, you feel, listen, preacher, he says, you have to keep praying for those people. You can't say, well, I feel like they're they're, they're not being very fair to me, though, God. They're, they're, They're not loving me like they used to. He says, it doesn't matter. The fact is you have a responsibility as pastor to pray for those people. And if you don't pray for them, you're sinning against me, not them. In Luke 18, 1, he says, and he spake a parable unto them to this end that men ought always to pray and not to faint. We need to pray for enlightenment as pastors. We need to pray for illumination. We need to pray for understanding and wisdom. We need to pray for a resolution to the situation. James 1, 5 says, if any, any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not and it shall be given them. Now Again, that's what a pastor's responsibility is in the midst of this situation. But I'm sure that in many situations in your lives, you will find this to be the case as well. Number seven, and let me close with this particular point. A pastor, if he, you know, if someone has gotten the idea that the pastor's the enemy, then the pastor needs to understand. He's got to understand. You say, what do you mean, understand? Yeah, hold on, let me explain. First of all, he needs to understand that they're only human. Boy, how many times do we allow our hurt to spew venom on others? Because someone was mean to us, we're going to be mean to them and feel justified in it most of the time. And yet the truth is, is that a pastor, when someone feels that he's become the enemy in their eyes, it would be easy for him to say, Oh, yeah, you think I'm the enemy? Then I'll start acting like one mister. You want to see enemy? Uh, That's not what God would have us do, though. God would have the preacher understand that they're only human, first of all. And God would have us all to understand that when people are hurt around us and when people are treating us ill. They're only human. See, we used to say, to err is human, to love is divine. That first part's for, for sure certain, isn't it? And the last part is, too, really. We talked about that the other night. It's just normal for humans to make mistakes, to mess up, to sin. Our expectations need to be realistic as men of God. If we struggle with others at times, what can we expect of those who we lead? May they not struggle with you? Well, I mean, look at me. How could they struggle with this? I mean, are you kidding me? We're all just human so understand that they are only human also a pastor has to understand something else he has to understand that people those that he leads in the congregation often carry tremendous burdens now when when you're carrying a big burden when i'm carrying a large burden it is easy to, for reality to be blurred it's easy for problems to be magnified. Have you, have you ever talked to a couple that's going through difficult times and, and one of the other starts to tell you something that's going on and you think to yourself, in the back of your mind you're going, that doesn't sound like a big deal to me. That sounds like that would be easy to fix. I mean, all they would have to do is... But you got to understand, there's so much hurt now. There's so many open wounds. There's so much pain that reality is blurred and problems are now magnified. And you know, a pastor has to realize that about the people that he serves. That they carry great burdens at times. And those burdens can create conflict, even with him. And then he needs to understand this. He needs to understand that Satan is in the blinding business. Look, if you would, in 2 Corinthians 4, 3 and 4, Satan's in the blinding business. You know, how many times do we dismiss Satan's place in our problems or in our lives? I mean, think about that. You know, our children are struggling spiritually, and and we we don't really chalk it up to spiritual warfare. We chalk it up to some attitude. It is an attitude, I get it, but it's rooted in spiritual warfare. Too many times we leave God and that spiritual battle out of the picture. But when this takes place in a church, the, 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 the real temptation is to take it personally as a pastor. And, and to some degree it is personal. How can you not look at it that way? And, and yet as a person, you know, it's easy for you to take things that are said personal and for you to feel like it's an attack against you. And uh, Sometimes I get that. I, I get that. We take it so personal. And we fail to remember and realize where the real attack is. That it's not a person, that person we see, that's really the enemy. It's Satan. And we better watch which way we're going there, right? By the way, Satan's really not down. (laughs) I don't want to go into the details of that. But anyway, that's why I have a tendency to point out because he's really not down. But nonetheless, okay, so we'll not go into that now. Satan's in the binding business. So this is a spiritual warfare. And the real enemy is the pastor. not the person that's struggling with you as the pastor, but the devil himself. And Second Corinthians 4, 3-4 it makes that clear. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are what? Lost. In whom the little g, I love the, the emphasis on little g. I always like to make a big deal. of The little g versus the big g God. Because there is a God that rules this world. He's little g, though. He's not g-money. He's little g. (laughs) You guys just... Good for you. I'm glad you don't have a clue what I'm talking about. Good for you. You obviously don't work on the buses. Okay, so moving on. So he says, But if our gospel be hid, it's hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them, hath blinded the minds of them which believe not lest the glorious light of the gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. I understand that he's talking about those that are lost, but can I tell you something? Satan is in the blinding business, and you'd be amazed how many believers he has blinded. Boy, he pulls the wool over our eyes. Well, be very careful, would you? And as a pastor, I have to be very aware of this. I need to understand this truth. Because the first temptation that I have when I'm attacked is to want to respond in like manner. But I've got to remember where the attack's really coming from. It's not really the person. It's an entity by the name of Satan. And they are simply being a tool or a mouthpiece for him at that point. And that's assuming, now that is assuming that I'm speaking the truth and it's being spoken in love. And I haven't you know, created this mess. Because let's be honest, pastors have created their own messes. And then they wonder why the world's falling apart around them. But 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 then, on the other hand, and and, and I'm always a pastor guy, you know what I mean? I'm one of those guys that says, I'm going to stand in the pastor's corner, you know? I'm going to give him the benefit of the doubt. That's, that's me, because, you know, it's kind of like bikers hang together. It's like <laughs> driving, you know. They wave to each other, you know how that is, you know. I wonder, do teachers do that too in the hallway? They're like, you know, or do they give a high fi or something, you know, as they walk by? I don't know, but, but teachers, whatever, you know what I mean? I, I don't know, but, you know. So anyways, as pastors, we, we have to be very careful though, okay? So these are some of the things that as a pastor you have to, to do uh, and you must do if you're going to see God do a work in lives. In, in the congregation, and in, in the lives of people that are hurting, and and so these were just a few suggestions I had. And again, we're dealing with this whole thing. I mean, Paul had poured his life into the Galatians. He loved them. He reached them, and he did his best to equip them. He tried to give them the tools needed to navigate the Christian life. But unfortunately, some false teachers wielded their way in and sowed seeds of corruption and doubt and false doctrine, and they eventually turned the people against Paul. It was so serious a matter that Paul had to ask the question of the people, am I therefore become your enemy? Because I tell you the truth. May God help us to never come to that place, but it could happen to the best of us. Let's be on guard. Let's guard those hearts. And whether you're the pastor, in my case, or whether you're one of the folks in the church, we both need to be on guard constantly. Let's pray for one another as we go ahead in these days of confusion in our world. May we find the simplicity of the gospel at the forefront of our minds always. And may we have fellowship with the Lord and one another. Father, we come to you. We thank you.